Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. It's easy to get people to, to say a bunch of platitudes about a decedent or an injured person, but it's not impactful and it's not memorable. And it's exactly what the jury expects from us as plaintiff's lawyers. So hopefully the lawyer, me or whoever on my team's doing it, get out of the way and let the witness tell their story. Please rise, court is now in session. Welcome to the uh, Great Trials Podcast. As always, I am your uh, host, Steve Lowry, uh, here with Yvonne Godfrey. Um, Yvonne, how are you doing? I'm good, I'm good. I'm excited to talk about the case we're gonna talk about today. It's it's a recent one, or at least recent verdict, as the time of our recording. So yeah, I know we, it, you know, even though we uh, sort of do delayed uh, releasing of these, uh, so our listeners can know, uh, we are for me at least, Yvonne, uh It was uh, spring break for my uh, daughters last week, so you know we had a nice week, a nice relaxing week. Uh, but some of us uh, had a really, really good week last week, and uh, and our next guest, I think, is one of those people who had just a uh, fantastic week uh, last week. Uh, our guest is Alan Hamilton from Shiver Hamilton in Atlanta, Georgia, and you can look up Alan at uh, shiverhamilton.com. Alan, how are you doing? I'm great, Steve. I hope you are. Thanks for we- yeah, absolutely. So, uh, in, in, so our listeners should know, I mean, you tried this, the case that we're about to talk about, you tried this last week and I think got your verdict on Wednesday. Is that right? That's exactly right. I, I moved down to Columbus Saturday a week ago uh, to hunker down in the hotel and we started trial Monday morning, spent the whole day Monday getting a jury, uh, which was great that the judge was, that is such a fundamentally important part of any big case. Uh, that the judge gave us time to do that. And then we put our entire plaintiff's case up on Tuesday and rested by three o'clock. And then the, came back for closings Wednesday morning and had a verdict by lunch. So it was a very, very efficient uh, three days. Lunch. Yeah. And just so, uh, you know, for our uh, listeners, we can know the, um, so the name of the case is Win uh, versus MDV Spartan Nash LLC and XL Insurance America Inc. Uh, it was tried in the state court of Muskogee County, uh, Georgia. And, um, and it resulted in a $27 million verdict for the wrongful death of uh, Cindy Tran Quinn. Um, and so, uh, basically, what Alan is saying is that uh, he uh, tried this case, tried the entire case within three days, and it resulted in just a uh, phenomenal verdict. And um, and we're going to talk a lot more about that case, but but that's the case that we're here to talk about, and that's great work, Alan. Thank you. So uh, let me introduce you, Alan, so our listeners can know who we're talking to. Uh, Alan is a uh, partner with Shiver Hamilton. Again, it's in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, Alan and his partner, Jeff Shiver, have had just a tremendous string of verdicts um, uh, all around the Southeast and especially in the state of Georgia uh, with verdicts ranging from 30 million, 20 million, 17 million, 13 million, uh, five, 2.5, just uh, some really um, uh, fantastic verdicts. Uh, Alan has been chosen as a top 100 lawyer in Super Lawyers uh, for Georgia. He's also been uh, named as one of the legal elite in Georgia Trend. He's been in the Daily Report. That's uh, it, that's our uh, legal magazine. A, a on the rise, top 40 under 40 uh, trial lawyers or top 40 under 40 lawyers. Um, and he has been uh, named as one of the top 100 trial lawyers by the National Trial Lawyers. And he is in the um, in the Verdicts Hall of Fame, the Daily Reports Verdict Hall of Fame as well. And um, and uh, another just fantastic award that Alan has received is uh, here in Georgia, we give out a um, our the Georgia Trial Lawyers gives out an award for the Courageous Pursuit of Justice Award. It's called the Nesselhut Award, um, which is actually based on a case that one of our previous guests, Adam Malone, uh, had. And, uh, and, and Alan is a recipient of the Courageous Pursuit of Justice Award from GTLA. Uh, Alan graduated from University of Georgia Law School, magna cum laude. He was in the Order of Coif and uh, was named the best oralist in the Talmadge Moot Court competition. Uh, Alan has 
um, clerked under Judge William Acker for the Northern District of Alabama, and um, we're just so happy to have you on here, Alan. Welcome. Thank you, Steve, Yvonne. Appreciate it. Happy to be here. Did you think we were going to go all the way back to some of your law school accomplishments? <laughs> well, I was <laughs> really worried about getting into college stuff there. I was <laughs> but, uh, if I could have found something on you for high school, I would have done that too. But, uh, <laughs> um, well, so Alan, I'll, I'm going to give a, just a quick uh, overview of this case. And if I get something wrong, just let me know. But, uh, but basically, this was a case that happened uh, down in Columbus, Georgia, um, and uh, your uh, client's daughter, Cindy, uh, Cindy Wynn, uh, was driving a uh, motorcycle, um, and she was on the Technology Parkway, I think is what it was called, and basically she had a green light, a tractor trailer, uh, also had a green light come in the opposite direction, and from what I could take from it, the tractor trailer basically, without looking, uh, made a left-hand turn right in front of uh, of Cindy and um, she tried to avoid uh, the trailer uh, but ended up hitting the tail end of it and um, and essentially was pronounced dead uh, at the scene or at, maybe at the, at the hospital but um, unfortunately uh, pronounced dead shortly thereafter and um, and just a, uh, a tragic tragic case it, that's the basics of it is that right Alan really was it was a very tragic case and that is all right slight correction not that it necessarily matters but if anybody's familiar with the columbus area they were actually on macon road the truck truck was turning left onto technology parkway which by happenstance happens to be about a quarter of a mile from the terminal where he was going back to finish the day um a couple of things about the crash that i think are, are worth noting in the context of our conversation um, he did look, the truck driver did look, it was a, it's a five lane major 55 mile an hour thoroughfare. It's not, it is, it is not divided access, but it's got lights where you can turn across the opposing lanes of traffic. Uh, but it's, it's thousands of feet of visibility. So he says he looked, the, the initial story for why he turned in front of her was that there was, if you'll picture it with me, the motorcycle's coming one way, the truck driver's <laughs> approaching the other way. Well, there's dedicated turn lanes for both directions. And Cindy on this bike is driving pretty much right next to a man in a pickup truck. Nobody said the man did anything wrong, but he's right next to her as they approach. He's intending to turn left. So it would be a situation where he's turning left onto the, going the other way on Technology Parkway and the truck's going left and literally they would be going apart from each other, opposite directions on the same road. So if you can follow that, the defense was, you can't, yes, he had a duty to yield to Cindy, but under Georgia law, you cannot fail to yield to what you cannot see. And essentially, the defense was, you couldn't see Cindy. We're not at fault because the truck driver was looking but couldn't see her because she was obstructed from view behind this Ford pickup truck coming the other way. So I, I, that is a significant just over overlay kind of fact for the wreck and the way uh, things played out in discovery. And, and the other thing that was significant to the folks that handle these kind of cases, a left-turning truck, the first question anybody that handles truck cases has, if you're looking at that, is, okay, where did my client hit the truck or trailer? Right. About as bad as it could be. I mean, she basically hit the ICC bumper at the back as he was turning. So those were important things that had to be fleshed out early on in the, in the handling of the case. Yeah, you know, that, that brings up an interesting thing I was just thinking of is that, you know, you, you see some of these trucking companies now uh, will actually have a policy uh, where they try to get their drivers not to make left-hand turns and will actually uh, try and do routes where they're only making right-hand turns. And, um, and you know, this would be a, a, um, a case where why left-hand turns can be so dangerous. But, um, you know, at the very least, even if he didn't see anybody coming, you think that the truck driver would have at least stopped his truck uh, to make sure no one was coming before just pulling across a 55 mile hour um, roadway. Right. Did the truck, so did the truck have a, uh, just a green light, not a green arrow, right? That's right. Just green on green. So they, she's going straight. He's got going, it. The solid green each way. So, uh, you know, left has to yield to straight. There was no dispute about that. It was right. Not, there are some older cases in Georgia that, that can be read uh, in, in a way, if, if you 
take it out of context that you just, if you can't see it, you just go. Of course, the two duties are related, though, the duty to look and the duty to yield. Right. Right. And I mean, just so just so y'all know, my dad, when teaching me to drive and I was a very slow learner to drive, his his go to rule was if you don't know, don't go. So that's a good one. I know that's not Georgia law, but I should. Well, it can be. I should have put it in the deposition. (laughs) No, I I like that a lot. (laughs) I had one like that, but it didn't have as good of a hook. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. Well, it wasn't really that effective. I think I still got in two wrecks when I was 16. So, <laughs> Oh, well. Um, well, and, and, you know, that brings up another question for me, Alan. Was there anything in the uh, um, CDL manual, the commercial driver's license manual, that, that would um, govern this situation for a truck driver as far as uh, stopping before they make a left-hand turn? There, there are plenty of materials in there about the importance of timing and the importance of being sure it's clear and the dangers of left turns. But, but no, there's not, we didn't have anything that said you have to stop per se. Uh, but that was a fallback to look, you, you have to be sure you have slowed down enough or stopped to make sure it's clear. Uh, if there's any doubt, stop. Right. Those were certainly features of the way we attack the case uh, in discovery and in the key depositions. And now I, I saw in the complaint that, that you sent us, um, you had one of the allegations was that the driver um, uh, for MD, MDV Spartan Nash had already admitted that this was 100% his fault. Was that, that something that he did uh, at the scene or, or how did, how did y'all know that? No, um, that was through his deposition. So one thing I sometimes do is amend the complaint uh, right. or getting key admissions in discovery. So the, the defense hired an accident reconstructionist who had done a visibility study and was planning to support the notion that the bike was simply hidden by its proximity to the Ford so that on the approach, the trucker couldn't see her and didn't do anything wrong. Um, and I got into the truck driver's deposition and really spent a lot of time preparing these rules of the road type questions. And as he and I had a nice conversation, and I will say he is the nicest truck driver I've probably ever met uh, and had a stellar driving record, frankly. So there knew there was no, you know, there's really nothing to get the jury inflamed against him. So uh, we really didn't try to attack him at all. I kind of approached it from, sir, I, I know you, you tell me you didn't see her, I believe. And, but, but let's talk about it. You know, you, You've got thousands of feet of visibility, right? Sure, yes. And so as you approach, you know as a truck driver, and Steve, I know you're all familiar with the, the stuff from the CDL manual uh, and the Smith system and J.J. Keller and all of those different sources that we have that talk about driving 10 to 15 seconds ahead and, and keeping right. that, that distance of lookout. And, of course, he endorsed and agreed with all that. And so we kind of walk through it as they approach um, – the, the truck that supposedly blocked her has got to be slowing down a lot, right? He's making a left turn. Yeah. And we just kind of walk through together. There's no way that she should or would be going that slow. And there's therefore no way she could have been hiding in his blind spot the whole time, logically. And it, essentially, I just said, listen, I, I know you didn't mean to do it. And, and I know I believe you when you say you didn't see her. But the only thing I can think of just sitting here, I, I truly, the only thing I can think of is that you didn't see her because you didn't keep a good enough lookout as you approached him. He paused for 10 seconds while the objections uh, rattled around the room. And then he said, I, you know, I agree. And so with that, a couple of questions later, I just said, so you, you know, you, you accept hundred percent on behalf of the trucking company, hundred percent of the fault for this. And he did. And so there were several questions like that. And, and that was a pivotal moment in the case, um, obviously. And we amended the complaint and then it, they, they admitted those things because it's exactly what he had said. This episode of the Great Trials podcast is brought to you by Legal Technology Services or LTS. Yvonne, have you ever been in the courtroom and right when you're about to make the big point to the judge or to the jury, play a video, bring up a document and your technology has frozen or not worked? No joke, Steve. That has never happened to me because I use LTS. Yes, and LTS, Legal Technology Services, are experts at legal courtroom technology, whether you're talking about demonstrative exhibits, playing videos, doing day-in-the-life videos, 
or doing settlement videos or just presenting your evidence to the jury, these are the experts. They can also help you out as far as scheduling depositions nationwide. They can take care of it, arrange for the court reporter, the videographer, arrange the location. They get what a trial involves, they get what a deposition involves, and you can use them to make your life a lot easier. They have also been voted four times as either the best of trial services or best hot seat technician by the Daily Report. So you should definitely call them up. And when you do, mention the Great Trials podcast. And that's Legal Technology Services. You can talk to Bob, Melanie, or anyone else on their team. They are fantastic people and fantastic at their jobs. Legal Technology Services at LTSAtlanta.com. That's LTSAtlanta.com. Um, and I, I noticed, Alan, in uh, just backing up into the facts a little bit, I noticed that the accident, uh, uh, the collision happened on January 26th of 2017. Um, was, it, was it nighttime, daytime, uh, as far as the visibility? It was broad daylight. Broad daylight. Um, and then she was on a, from what I saw, a Yamaha FZ6R, which is a, a a motorcycle and, and looks like what some people uh, might refer to as a crotch rocket. Um, was there any sort of allegation that she was uh, uh, riding too fast or um, riding in a reckless manner or anything like that? No, um, there, there was, we obviously were very concerned about just the whole specter of a sport bike uh, or crotch rocket being in the case. Uh, and certainly spent time in jury selection on that. But the, the, the Columbus Police Department has a, has a specialized reconstruction team. And their findings early on before we even got involved uh, were that she was, you know, going right at or I mean, maybe a mile or two over. But their range of speed had her pre-braking at or within the speed limit or maybe slightly over it. And I don't think any of the reconstructions really had it much different. And it was also very helpful that, you know, additionally, um, it was helpful additionally that uh, when when the eyewitness testified, he said he was going about the speed limit in the mile approaching the intersection, and then right. passed her. So, okay. was I don't remember exactly how fast I was going, but I was going about fifty five. And the next question, were you gaining on her, losing her? He said, well, you know, we're kind of near each other, but I, I was slightly pulling away from her. Is he, is, is that eyewitness, is that the person who was making the left-hand turn? That is the person who was going to make the left-hand turn. Of course, he, he never made the turn because he saw this happen and jumped out and, and went to her side and, and was a, a witness to, you know, her last moments. Uh, but, but yes, he was, he was the guy they were blaming. They weren't apportioning fault to him. I mean, he, nobody said he did anything wrong. They were just saying he's effectively uh, the obstruction that is the reason we trucking company are not at fault either. Right. And you, and you said that they had hired a, um, an expert on that. Did they actually run any sort of tests to try and uh, take a truck and a motorcycle out there to show that uh, you wouldn't be able to see the motorcycle behind it? I, I think something like that was done, but I, much to my chagrin, I was really looking forward to taking the deposition of the expert, and they decided not to put the, put the witness forward. So they right. the driver admitted it. They made what I perceived to be a wise strategic move uh, on the defense side to try to just take all the heat out of the case, admit everything, and focus it purely, squarely, and only on damages. Right, right. Um, well, and, and that gets us into uh, several things that I think from a strategic standpoint that the defense tried to do in this case. Um, and, and I want to make sure we, we talk to you about how you handled this and overcame it. But um, essentially, as I understand the facts, Alan, they uh, admitted liability, meaning they admitted they were at fault and that they caused her death. Um, and then uh, if, I, if I saw the facts right, they didn't put in any evidence uh, so that in Georgia, when you do that, uh, then normally the plaintiff would have the first and last statement in closing argument, uh, meaning the plaintiff uh, gets to talk last. Uh, but if if the defendant does that, then they are able to steal the first and last and, and to be, have the last word in front of the jury. That is that what happened in this case? That's exactly what happened. Um, I, they they were 
they almost decided to call that eyewitness I referred to because he was a mixed bag as to pain and suffering. Um, he's a great guy and very credible, but uh, we had offered a small part of his videotape deposition, and essentially uh, he had he had gotten to her and said her you know her eyes were open but rolled back and quote his little quote he said was she was not there. Right. That really followed up on the deposition, and he said some other things. Um, I mean, the outside bound of our proof was that, according to the medical examiner, she might have lived a few moments up to a few minutes, five being the absolute maximum that it could have been given the severity of the injuries. But they were—they almost called him, I think, to try to to try to disprove a little bit or undercut. Um, not in an improper way, but just to undercut the the notion that there was any significant pain and suffering. Uh, and they, they said they were going to call him after lunch, came back from lunch, and um, they released him. So they, they chose to take final closing argument. They opened and closed the arguments, just right. like you, you said. Got it. And, and just so our, our listeners uh, uh, can know, I mean, so one of the elements of damages in a, in a death case is uh, conscious pain and suffering of the uh, decedent. And so I assume that the reason why they would want to call Mr. Parsons or the, call this witness, uh, which I saw his name was, was Parsons, uh, is, is because we, part of his testimony was that by the time he got to her, her, um, her like you said, her eyes were rolling back in her head and she just wasn't there it's in order to prove uh, that there either wasn't or was not much uh, conscious pain and suffering. Um, now, of course, that, that doesn't uh, do away with the uh, pre-impact uh, pain and, you know, um, emotional suffering that she would have gone through when she realized that there was a truck in her way. But um, it, it doesn't, Steve. You just hit on a very significant point. I mean, the, the way the case came together, so we knew, all right, they've now taken any heat out of the case, and we didn't have any punitive proof anyway. I mean, the truck driver was sober, had a long, clean history as a driver. Uh, there's really nothing there. It was just a split-second bad decision that he made. And the flip side of that, though, we, we were very meticulous in planning and structuring motions in Lemony to say, well, if they're going to sterilize the case and make it all about damages, then we should not float things in the courtroom that are potentially distracting. And the, the key examples that came to my mind were, number one, I don't want the jury to be told that she hit the very back end of the trailer. Because right. you bring that up, the first question is, well, why didn't she miss it? And that gets us into a, a very important discussion of time distance from the state, right. both parties in the reconstruction. And, and so related to that, an, another um, you know, key fact we didn't want was the idea that he did not see her. Because that begs a question, well, what do you mean he didn't see her? Was she invisible? Was she going so fast? And, and thirdly, we did not want there to be any testimony or evidence about this Parsons, Mr. Parsons, the eyewitness's pickup truck being across the intersection in the turn lane. And I've got to give defense lawyer credit. He was very creative in convincing. Oh, lastly, I didn't want the jury to know what kind of bike it was unless the defense was going to prove it. So we were very careful not to put up witnesses through whom they could get out the kind of bike it was. Because if he wanted the jury to know that, I wanted to get final close. Because right. that's, you know, of course, they have to put up evidence. So um, not to get too bogged down in the details here, but, but we were we tried to set it up where all those facts, hitting the back of the trailer, the Parsons pickup truck being across the way, uh, Mr. The, the driver not, not seeing her were kept out. Well, we won on not seeing her. We won on he could only talk about the bike if he was going to prove it. But he said, the defense lawyer said cleverly, I don't think it was right, but, but he made the argument that, that where the pickup was and her hitting the back were relevant to the pre-impact fright, shock, and terror. Right. Yeah. I mean, I see the argument. It's a, it's, it's a good argument. Um, Wait, but, uh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't understand go it. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> well, I puzzled over it, too. I mean, it, 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 to me, it was like, Judge, it's a Rule 403, prejudice versus probative value. First of all, just saying she hit the back of the trailer, I, I basically said, well, you tell me how many seconds that means she saw it. I'll stipulate to it because you don't need that fact because right. really right. it's a Trojan horse. They want to just throw it in the courtroom and then have the jury speculating about, well, why didn't she just steer a foot to the left? Well, the truth is, you know, a half set when you do the reconstruction, a half a second before impact, she's staring at the middle of the trailer and a full second before she's looking at the front axle. 
because these two things are moving in concert with one another. But, but I lost, and so we had to make the decision, and we made it right before trial to drop pre-impact, getting back to your point, Steve. So we, we, we actually had no charge and no argument as to pre-impact uh, because we couldn't keep out those poisonous facts and go for pre-impact as a separate item of damages. Oh, wow. So, so uh, you know, one thing I didn't tell our listeners is that the, the verdict was broken down to $22 million for the full value of Cindy's life and then $5 million for pain and suffering. So that $5 million was all post-impact pain and suffering as far as the evidence. That, that's right. There was no, no charge or instruction or proof about any anticipation on her part. And wow. So was that based on the testimony of a, of a medical examiner? How, how, did you, um, how did you put that in? Primarily the medical examiner, uh, Dr. Desimores at GBI, uh, who did the autopsy. And, and the key things, it was a little odd. I mean, people usually spend all their time proving how bad injuries were. To me, the starting point was what a good job her helmet did, that she had a totally intact spinal cord and brain. Right. Uh, so there's no reason that she wouldn't have had the, the signals from her injured, a lot of horrible injuries in her inside her chest and abdomen that caused her to essentially bleed to death internally, um, that, that she would have been able to perceive those. Uh, and and the, the eyewitness, frankly, was, like I said, a mixed bag. I mean, honestly, it probably the, the evidence was stronger based on the medical examiner than what the eyewitness actually saw. Uh, so let me, you know, this is just a, uh, I guess, a practice pointer for, uh, you know, lawyers who handle these types of cases. We're always, uh, you know, part of our job in order to maximize damages for our clients is to prove uh, the pain and suffering that the decedent went through. But that can be really, really difficult on the surviving family. And so I'm wondering, um, when you put in evidence like that, that, you know, essentially she had internal injuries that caused her to bleed out, meaning that she's conscious and, uh, and, and there is suffering going on towards the end of her life. Did you, how did you present that? And, and did you have her family in the courtroom when you did that? Great questions. Um, in opening statement, I was fairly, I moved quickly through it and did not labor uh, anything that I, and I warned the family that we were going to talk about it a little bit. Um, but in the actual evidence, uh, we, I had my client and family leave during the medical examiner's testimony and yeah. eyewitnesses short deposition. Uh, and then in, in closing though, I just, you know, I didn't, and before I, just as a, as an aside, I mean, I did not make a, a production out of that. I told the court and defense lawyer together that we were going to do that and make sure there was no kind of objection to it. And of course there wasn't, it's just one of those things. If you bring it up, it won't be a problem. If you don't, you never know what somebody will try to say or do call attention to it or make it a distraction. So, um, she just discreetly left the room during that part of the trial and closing. I had to talk about it some and I just, that it's very hard. Uh, it's very hard. Uh, but that was part of it. I mean, we don't typically, and in this case, certainly, we put in some autopsy pictures, but they were in a sealed envelope. I don't even know if any of the jury uh, looked at them. And, I, and that's how I talk about it in closing, too. Some of you may want to see it and some of you may not. Um, we, we did not flash them up on the screen for shock effect, essentially, is what I want them to know, that I'm, I'm not going for um, uh, melodrama, but trying to just bring the necessary evidence to the people who need to see it. Um, yeah. And so, um, going back for a second to the, um, to the, the fact that the defense put in no evidence so that they could take your closing. I mean, to tell, talk, walk us through how you handled that and, and how the defense argued this case as far as, um, trying to limit the amount of damages uh, that they were, that the jury is going to award for Cindy's life. Well, uh, we, we suspected that, they would not put in any evidence. Of course, they don't have to tell you for sure. And there's always some gamesmanship surrounding that, with, you know, in trials, but we prepared and planned for a closing that had to be surrounded by their open and final close. Um, one thing that we did, and I don't always do this, but in cases that are strong uh, where 
I don't think there's a, a, obviously there was no hurdle on liability here, but in cases where I feel like there's either no hurdle or or a one that we absolutely should win, um, we put our number out there in opening statement. Uh, we told we went ahead and we're not going to get final close anyway. Uh, right. Last word, regardless, might as well be a complete open book about it. And one of the things that we were able to circle back to in closing, of course, Steve, as you, as you would expect, the defense did a good job of claiming in opening, we're, we, have, we are here to be accountable. We're hiding nothing. We didn't defend the case. All we're here about is the giant number these people want, and we can't resolve that piece of it. And so they, they used an analogy of uh, the truth sometimes uh, rarely walks through the front door of a courtroom and oftentimes has to, be, has to be dragged in the back kicking and screaming. Of course, their point was, we're here to tell the truth. We're walking in the front door. All we ask is it should be fair. Well, I came back to that in closing. Of course, the first closing was just as a lot of plaintiff's lawyers do it, too. I mean, there's no number in the first closing. You're just trying to set the stage. And then you let the other guy talk and then you get up and you get the last word. You're the last right. one who talks about numbers then. But because we had been an open book in final, in my only closing, um, we were essentially able to say, I don't know why they wouldn't tell me their numbers still to this day and let us talk about it as a family. I mean, I didn't say family, but the jury, us, all of us together, look at it together and let us address it and let us talk about whether it's fair, whether it's reasonable for the value of a life. And it gets back to their analogy. They're going to sneak their number in the back door. Um, it's not that the truth came through and opening from us. We've never changed. We said what the case is and what it's worth from the very minute we got here with you. Uh, so we could all look at that together in the context of this trial and the defense could talk about it and everybody could, could, could consider it. And they're, I don't know why they're scared to let us have any say so in what their number is. Um, and, you never really know what's effective, but it felt good. Right. <laughs> well, and, and so the, in, in the opening statement, when you first put your number out there, was it the, uh, was it the 22 million for the value of the life and 5 million for pain and suffering, or was it something different? No, our, our, in this particular case, and I, I have to pause to say this is a very, very high quality young lady. Um, and yeah. every life is precious and everybody, I don't, uh, you know, I, I've represented people with lots of problems and skeletons in the closet and those with not as many, but she was just, pardon my French, she's just a badass. I mean, she was 22 years old, had, instead of going, she was top of her class at a tiny little county, Marion County, Georgia, outside Columbus. She had laid all aside going to college to serve as an enlisted person in the Army for four years, had gotten out on the GI Bill started at Columbus State and, and the proof was she wanted to go back and become a Marine Corps officer after college. So she's 22, essentially having deferred college. She's now in her second semester of college, um, just by all accounts, a wonderful person. So in, in that context, um, you know, our, our discussion of it in opening was that everything that makes life precious and, and the wonderful life this girl lost was worth a million dollars a year for the lost life in the future. So if you ran that, it was in the 50 million range. Right. Um, and, and we ultimately, I think that quite a few of them fully bought in, but, but obviously not all 12. Right. Well, related to that, you mentioned, um, or at the beginning of the episode about having basically a, a full day f uh, for Vordire, but um, you know, given your client's background and kind of where she was coming from, you knew it was going to be admitted liability. Um, you're thinking about your damages award. What kind of things did you do to sort of, um, you know, try to get a jury that was going to give you a fair shot on the case? Um, I, we definitely wanted to know, um, people's attitudes and, and beliefs about lawsuits like you always do in a case, in any case. Right. Uh, we wanted to know about experience with motorcycles. Who, there weren't many people that had ever ridden, and it was a really quiet panel. I mean, it was, it was, uh, it was tough to get a whole lot out of them. And Shadow, my partner, did the board hire and did a really great job, and we had some good conversations with him. Uh, but it was – the other things, um, 
you know, we wanted to get an idea of who has uh, thoughts about verdicts being too high, there being too many cases, too many verdicts, um, and and try to just get a sense of who, of, of how people value life and what makes it precious to them. I I will say that one of the challenges, and this was this is something we knew going in, was that. Um, it would probably be a relatively low socioeconomic earnings uh, panel, and it was. And the defense did an effective job of really at every opportunity calling to att- calling attention to just how much money a million dollars is um, to in, in light of the experience of the people on the panel. And that that definitely you know, played itself out. And I, I was pleased that we were able to obviously get people to, to look way past that and way beyond the amount of money they get or have or will ever earn. Uh, but that was certainly a big feature of the case. And another thing that we're concerned about and, and tried to be open about uh, with the jury and jury selection uh, was you know, our, our clients. Our client is an adult who lost an adult child and was not depending on that adult child. So if you, the path to a, a, you know, average verdict in a case like this is the jury starting to focus on how much money a million dollars is to them. And secondly, how much money this relatively poor plaintiff needs uh, for the loss of an adult child. I mean, those are, those are big gorillas lurking in a case like this. Now, I mean, the, the good news is it's a great case and we were going to win something. Uh, but right. The insurance company view of it generally, uh, um, quite clearly, was when you got no heat and an adult plaintiff who's poor and not depending on the deceased, um, and you've got a relatively poor jury venue. Um, you know, they they really believe the the you know they kind of even told us early the insurance company's message was basically look if you think you're getting ten million out of this thing you're going to get it from a jury and. And that was the test. I mean, the case really was a test of whether a pure damages case in a relatively rural venue. And I think Columbus is a, is a, is a good venue, a lot of folks would say. But it is, right. it is not what you're going to see in a big metro area where people are used to really big numbers. Um, and, and in that context, that was really the fault line in the case. Uh, is it going to be manageable because of those things we just talked about? Or, or can we motivate a jury to really recognize and speak truth to what life is worth, uh, particularly a, a, a wonderful life like Cindy's? Right. Yeah, and like you said, I mean, she sounded like just a um, just a, a fantastic young woman and, uh, and just a terrible loss of life uh, in this case. Um, it sounds like, Alan, that you did not have a chance to talk to the jury afterwards. Was that something that was allowed? And, and if you did, what? What did they have to say? You know, it, it is allowed, and Judge Richardson in, in Muskogee State Court is just one of the finest uh, people to be around as a judge. He really lets you try your case, has a great rapport with the jury. And he told them, he said, you're, you're, you know, you guys are free to talk to him. I don't like to corner him, to corner right. the jury, essentially. So I, I make myself available, and for whatever reason, these people were very efficient. They, were, they, they deliberated for only a half hour to return the verdict. I think it was like 27 minutes, which is remarkable symmetry to the verdict. But um, they they just nobody hung around. Now, I, I will probably try to reach out and get more information. I don't. Um, I love talking to them when I can, um, but I have not to this point. Of course, it's just a few days ago, but I, I did not talk to any of them myself afterward. Right. Yeah, it would be nice to hear, you know, how they came up with the with the amount that they did. Um, Alan, talk a little bit about what you did as far as the trial to to prove up the damages. What what types of witnesses did, did you put up to talk about Cindy and then talk about the uh, value of her life? Sure. Um, well, on the point you just made, Steve, I mean, we just after five less than five minutes, they asked for a calculator. And the right. defense asked for the quotient verdict charge, which, of course, it tells them they can't bind themselves to adding their numbers and dividing by 12. But they, it essentially gives them an idea. Right. That's what you always wonder about when you give that charge. Are you just giving them the idea to do it when they hadn't thought about it before? Exactly. And I think we would all – I mean, all of us that were there, the lawyers on both sides, I think we all suspect that they, they, they came up with the number by running a quotient. 
Uh, and then, of course, I'm sure that they properly deliberated on whether they agreed to that number. And they obviously figured out that they do. I, I have not confirmed that yet, but it just it seems awfully likely, given the magnitude of, of the case and the, to deliver it such a short period of time and ask for a calculator in a case with no real economics for them to crunch numbers on anyway. Um, <laughs> right. So, but but to, as to the damages witnesses, um, we had the eyewitness and the medical examiner as to pain and suffering. And then we had um, the, the stepfather who raised her since she was 18 months. He's not a party. He never adopted her, but he was her dad for all intents and purposes. Yeah. Justified. Her brother uh, came from Camp Pendleton in California. Her younger brother, who's a, an active duty U.S. Marine, came. Uh, her ex-boyfriend, interestingly, she had broken up with this guy that she dated when they were at Fort Bragg in the Army. He moved to Wisconsin. She moved back to Columbus to start school. And so they had, they had broken off their relationship about a year before she died. But he was just a fantastic guy and was willing to come talk about her, even though he wasn't with her at the time. They had stayed in touch some. Um, and he was a great witness. And, and, and we really appreciate him being willing to come down and do that. We did call an economist uh, and put him up, try to put him up as quick as possible. But it, it, as Jeff and our team would tell you, I got a, got a little long on the direct, but, <laughs> but I still try 45 minutes for a, an expert is pretty good. No, uh, that is good. <laughs> and still, you yeah. put up the whole case in a day. So, I mean, you yeah, can't complain that much. Right, right, right. Um, and then, then we additionally had, who else? We had a couple of other, we had a, a witness. This is a creative way to get testimony. Her roommate from law, from uh, the military was actually stationed at a forward operating base in Afghanistan and couldn't get to the trial. So we used WhatsApp to take wow. a deposition, uh, and, and she testified really compellingly. I mean, you've got to keep it really short, but the quality of it was good, and we had it. We got it sworn and taken down and, and edited and played for the jury. And then a, a former commanding officer or, or NCO uh, of hers when she was in the service was supposed to come live. And we had to pivot there and take a videotape deposition because he had a, a family medical thing where he couldn't get to Columbus. He's still in, in North Carolina. So that was our, our damages proof, all fast and, and got right to it. We didn't call the mother. I was um, just going to ask that, yeah. She's, she's, um, and, and it wasn't really no, no attention was drawn to it. I think it was her loss was so palpable. Um, nobody would hold it against us, but the thinking really was that not only is it so painful for her to do, but she also is Vietnamese and does not, she's kind of her, her English is borderline to the point that it's a little, she understands. And so it's a little weird to have an interpreter and it's clunky. Uh, and I think you lose a lot of times with interpreters, you just lose a lot of the emotion, not always, but a lot of times. And then, you know, it's hard for her to communicate in English, but clunky to do it through an interpreter. So she understands what we're saying. Uh, and then I just, we thought in this particular case that we could deliver the message through other witnesses and, and not put her through the emotional ordeal of having to testify. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a, <clears throat> a great idea. And I know you said that she stepped out during some of the testimony uh, about whether or not Cindy was was conscious after the the collision. Um, was she in the uh, Was she in there for the rest of the the um, voir dire and then um, and then for the trial? She was otherwise there the whole time. Yes. This episode of the Great Trials podcast is brought to you by Forge Consulting. So when a case gets resolved and you've reached a resolution for your client, a lot of times that is only half the job or a portion of the job. Many times the clients still need help on either setting up trust or figuring out how they're going to manage their the money that they've received. And when you have questions like that, that is where Forge Consulting comes in and you can find them at forgeconsulting.com. Yeah, they can really help you out with a lot of the stuff that can be really hard to navigate both for your clients and for the lawyers. They can do stuff like administer special needs and other types of settlement trusts. They can help your clients address and preserve Medicare and Medicaid benefits. They can assist with investing um, assets and expediting the settlement process. They're, they're really fantastic. If your brain kind of turns off when you get with numbers, then these guys can help you out. 
They also specialize in structured settlements, structuring attorney's fees, traditional annuities, and other financial management portfolio type questions that can help your clients in all aspects. Please reach out to Forge Consulting. You can find them at forgeconsulting.com. And when you reach out to Forge Consulting, please mention the Great Trials Podcast. Again, that's forgeconsulting.com. What, um, can you talk a little bit, especially, um, for newer lawyers, uh, what kinds of things do you, do y'all do Alan for these? I'm thinking, especially these sort of damages witnesses that this might be their first time ever, even in a courtroom, it might be a, uh, intimidating experience for them. In this case, it sounds like you were bringing people from different parts of the country. What kinds of things do you do to prepare them, um, for their testimony and what you want them to talk about to make it sort of meaningful and impactful? Well, I mean, it, depend, it, it depends on the case, the extent of, of preparation that needs to be done. And, and in, in some cases, there are things you're really worried about with the witnesses from a cross-examination standpoint. This was such a clean case in terms of the quality of, of Cindy and the lack of really anything any of them knew about the underlying facts or any disputes about that, that we really were just focused on unlocking the potential, unlocking the story, uh, un- unlocking the impact of it. What I think you run into, especially for newer lawyers, you know, it's easy to get people to, to say a bunch of platitudes about a decedent or an injured person, but it's not impactful and it's not memorable. And it's exactly what the jury expects from us as plaintiff's lawyers. So, you know, when you call these witnesses and when you're vetting them and deciding which ones to call, I really think that you want to know who can, who can effectively communicate anecdotes and stories because I tell witnesses all the time, you know, let's just think about this as from the lens of all of our common human experience. We all, if you tell me that about my friend, Steve, you know, well, tell me about Steve. Well, he's funny. He's great. He's a wonderful person. Adjectives and just declarations about this person. Well, that I expect to hear that, but it's not particularly memorable and it doesn't give me a real picture of the person. Uh, and it's not particularly motivating, and I'm going to forget all of it tomorrow. Um, on the other hand, it's just the way we're wired as human beings to, to learn and receive information and have an emotional connection to it. We try to unlock stories that the person knows from from their life and relationship with our client, and they don't have to be they don't have to be super dramatic, compelling. She saved a baby from a burning building kind of stories, but they're just the stuff. That, you know, of doing life together. And if you tell me a story about Steve, and I've got some in mind from Steve on the call that he <laughs> doesn't get it, I'll about 10 years from now. And it gives me a picture uh, and an association, and it connects to my life, and it connects to emotions, and it connects to things um, that, that are memorable and, and we hope motivating. So what I try to do is spend the time with witnesses to, to unlock some of those stories and figure out how to sequence and tell them and, you know, hopefully the lawyer, me or whoever on my team is doing it, get out of the way and let the witness tell their story um, where the lawyer kind of fades into the woodwork a little bit with damaged witnesses. Right, right. Well, I appreciate you talking about that because I feel like that's sometimes a, where a lot of newer lawyers might get their, their start when you're trying to um, – learn from other lawyers how to try a case. If you're not starting out on your own, then sometimes damages witnesses are the first witnesses that you get to try. But it's, um, I, I think it's a lot harder than people think it is to do it, to do it right or to do it well. So that's really useful advice. It is. And we often, we so often treat it as an afterthought too. How many times have you been there? You, you focused on liability, you've taken all these depositions and then you, it's tempting you, you look at your, associate on the case you say well who the hell's going to talk about the damages and right right you get to the pre-trial order where you have to list all the witnesses you're expecting to call and then that's of course where you don't have (laughs) a good list every time right 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 and and that is i mean a case with no other issues of course will focus one's attention on that but but it is something we really uh should all spend more time on earlier um absolutely sit with them too. You got to, you know, the, the phone is a useful way to initially screen somebody, but it's, it's remarkable to me when you get on their turf and spend a little time with the person 
how much more you get out of people um, that, that they may not even really, I mean, for lots of reasons, sometimes people have so much pain associated with the loss of the loved one that it, 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 you gotta, you gotta get, they've got to get comfortable with you to even let you in for them right. to open up that compartment of where they've sealed off this painful um, part of their life. And, and that's a, you know, you, you have to have trust to do that. And that can't necessarily be built on one phone call. Right. Yeah. I, I, um, I, I was going to add to the um, uh, damages witnesses. I mean, usually what we try to do is, is to, to find a couple of stories that, about the person that really tell what they're like. But, you know, even in a, a hotly contested liability case, effective damages witnesses who can really just talk about what type of person uh, your client was can help in the liability side of it because if your per- if if the person was a good person who uh, you know uh, always tried to do the right thing that they um, uh, and was an or and you know was an honest person um, you know then when it comes down to whether or not the defense is trying to apportion some damages or or, or to apportion liability or to put some fault on the plaintiff um, those damages witnesses help in that analysis too because. Uh, you know, the jury's just heard from all of these people about just what a great person your client was. That's, that's very true. And that, that's, we do that in a lot of cases. This one, I would say in this case, we still had some lingering. And even in our focus groups, even though there was no liability evidence, if you just float that there's a bike involved, a sport bike, and if the jury knows hitting the back of the trailer, it is amazing how some defense-oriented or, or what I would call low-numbers jurors will go there anyway. Yeah. So we did structure some of the damages proof to affirm her attention to detail, uh, her meticulousness as a person. We didn't use those labels, but I mean, those are things that we want to, those are pictures we want to paint and therefore conclusions we hope the jury is reaching on their own about Cindy. So uh, Alan, I wanted to go back for a second and you mentioned in passing that one of the depositions that you took was done through WhatsApp and uh, I've used uh, Skype or Zoom or, or, you know, um, you know, some sort of teleconferencing um, uh, uh, apparatus before, you know, when doing a, um, a, a deposition, but I've never used WhatsApp. And so, I mean, the only thing I'm familiar with WhatsApp is that you put like group texts on there and you text people in your outside the country. I mean, how does, how did WhatsApp work for doing the deposition? Well, WhatsApp does via voice over IP, uh, just like it does the texting. So it is, it is a way to make, uh, I have used it before, went out of the country to make phone calls without having to go through the, you know, pay Verizon to make that out of country call on the cell phone. And so, uh, Maggie, one of, one of our, uh, bright young millennial associates knew about it. I, I, I would never have thought of it, but I give her all credit for that idea that, that the, she was talking to the witness and the witness in Afghanistan has no reliable cell connection. So the way she communicates, I think a way a lot of service members communicate when they're, especially at those forward operating bases is to just use the internet that they have and use WhatsApp among other options to try to talk to folks back home. So Maggie and the witness figured that out. Yeah, that's, that's great. I mean, that's really, really helpful because, you know, when you have those people who are overseas, I mean, it can, you know, just the logistics of working out how you're going to have that person testify can be uh, a huge headache. Absolutely. So one of the other things that that I saw, um, Alan, is that before trial, you decided to dismiss the driver of the truck. And um, can you talk about that a little bit and, and the, uh, and, um, the thought process behind that. I mean, you had already uh, said that he was, uh, you know, came across as just a really good person. So, um, so talk about your, your um, thought process there. Well, we knew one of the, the things the defense would want to do is talk about the driver. I mean, use his name all the time and have him at the table looking sad and morose the whole time and call attention to, you know, being fair to him and, uh, none of which should should matter. I mean, the truth, the legal truth is that that in a case like this, the only question is what's the full value of the life. And in Georgia, for listeners outside of Georgia, one remarkable thing about our law is it actually says it's the full value of the life of the deceased from her perspective. Um, and so that's the only real consideration. It should not matter if the defendant is 
a little old lady. Uh, the defense actually in this case used referred to Aunt B. That that Aunt B from the Andy Griffith show. You got a picture that the defendant is Aunt B. To be fair, right? That really right. shouldn't matter, and it shouldn't matter if it's you know the the evilest corporation on earth uh, that is the defendant. When in a case like this, it's not a punitive case. It's just the value of the life, and it shouldn't be affected by it. But we knew that that there would be efforts to deflect it or to call attention to it being against against the truck driver. And so in a case like this, we often, once responding at Superior is fully admitted, which it was, um, once liability is established, which it was admitted here, um, unless there's some compelling reason to have the individual actor named as a defendant, such as venue or insurance coverage. So we verified that the coverage is the same either way, venues unaffected, jurisdictions unaffected. Uh, and that, that responding at Superior applies. And then the last thing we do is say, listen, we'll drop him, but you can't tell the jury that we sued him initially or that we just dropped him. And sometimes we get pushback on that, but that leads to a pretty difficult question for the defense lawyer. If And we didn't get pushback here, but when you do get pushback on it, your comeback to that is, wait, 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 wait. Well, how about the conflict of interest? Are you telling me you right. want agree to drop this guy and so he didn't get a big judgment against him for tactical advantage to serve the insurance company. Is that what you're saying? Right. It, right. Not a conflict. And I've never had anybody press it beyond that point. Um, so we were able to get, get him out and take him as a feature of the case out of the case. Um, and then they still wanted to bring him. And this is just a, one thing you'll see related to that. We wanted no evidence about him. He was a veteran himself. Um, he was just a good guy. He had a bunch of kids. He had, overcome some challenges. I mean, we did not want this to be a biography of this truck driver, which because it's irrelevant in a damages only case. And we, the defense wanted to bring him to jury selection and have him at the table. We of course said, no, we invoke the rule as to the trial. He can't be in the room, but as to jury selection, we said, fine, but, but don't let them give a long biography of him under the guise of seeing if anybody knows him. And, you know, both sides do this, but if you've been to a trial where you, you cringe during Vort Iyer while the other guy goes, does anybody know the, the truck driver, George? Anybody serve with him in the military for 25 right. years? Right. Yeah, <laughs> right, right. That's a fireman, and he's survived cancer, and he's got 20 children, and he gives to the, you know, all these things. By the way, anybody know him from any of that? <laughs> we were able in a motion limiting to preclude any of that, to where all they were allowed to do is, have him stand there and say, this is George. Does anybody know? And, and I think, you know, little things like that add up to keep the trial focused uh, where it needs to be in serious cases. Yeah. And for our listeners, uh, we should, when you said you invoke the rule, we're talking about the rule of sequestration, which essentially is that uh, a witness to the case cannot be in there uh, to hear the other witnesses because you don't want them to be influenced by other witnesses. So when, uh, Alan and his side invoked the rule that meant that any witness to the case couldn't be sitting in there while the trial was going on. Um, so, Alan, the other thing that I, um, you know, would like you to talk about. So in Georgia, you can bring uh, what's called a direct action against the insurance company in a trucking case. And uh, while we've done that many times, I'll tell you, I've never actually tried a case in a, in a direct action case. And did that have any effect on it? And tell me how, how that worked. Well, I mean, the insurance company is a named party. So the yeah. fact that insurance is right out in the open. Um, and yes, it is a sublime experience to try a case that way. Uh, right. I've tried several trucking cases with a direct action defendant. I think that you have to use good judgment about it and not hang on the rim about it, so to speak. I think trial judges are generally just like all of us. I mean, we all think of insurance as a taboo topic and there is some, there's not a lot of case law on it, but there is case law that if an insurance company is a party, then insurance is not taboo, but it is quite clear. You can't refer to the policy limit. Uh, nobody can, there can't be any argument of that, that any particular award would be under or over the limit. There's just no, no proof right. of it at all. Um, you know, you tender, you can tender the policy and you've got to be, you know, really careful to get, to, to have your ducks in a row because if you don't have any way to prove up the existence of the policy, and it's not something we usually think about calling a witness for, you can get jammed up. And I, I usually find it 
of people or smart to get a stipulation in place that, you know, simply that we've covered the elements of the direct action because the, the bargain for the defense is if you stipulate to it, then I'm not going to make a huge production out of calling a witness to go through the fact this is your carrier and this is your insurance policy. Uh, so we tendered the policy in open court uh, without obviously calling attention to the limit. And then the policy itself did not go out with the jury. Uh, and then we otherwise had a stipulation that, that for all legal purposes, the direct action was appropriate and proved up without need for us to do anything on the record. Uh, so, you know, other than that, I mean, we, we definitely could, could refer to the defendants together by name, including the insurance company and explain, you know, that it's a direct action and there's a jury charge that tracks the statute. So the jury knows there's an insurance company in the case. Um, so that's, it, it, it is significant. It is something that lawyers definitely should, should take advantage of uh, when it's appropriate in a case in a state like Georgia where we have a direct action statute that allows you to bring the carrier in. One challenge is you've got to have a separate venue hook for a carrier. They are not. Right. I don't know. If, I don't know if it'll end up on the final version of our podcast, but just so the listeners know, Alan's been getting a lot of phone calls. I assume <laughs> He's a popular con person. Congratulatory <laughs> phone calls, maybe. <laughs> Probably my kid calling me about something. Uh, <laughs> uh, I apologize for that. No, I, no, I, no, don't, don't apologize. I mean, the other thing is, is that just today at our firm, we uh, decided to change out our Wi-Fi, and so I actually lost contact for a while. I don't know if it came up on the uh, came up in in this or not, but uh, I walked into Yvonne's office, and she's like, "You're back on. Get get back downstairs. <laughs> get, back, get back downstairs." <laughs> <laughs> Well, in your office, Ron, I saw the, uh, I saw, it, it looks like you're at, like at, at house because you got like a big ceiling, like a vault ceiling behind you. Yeah, it's, if, if you look around, it's really, um, um, just so the listeners know, you can see me on video. It's really more, it's kind of like a 13-year-old's bedroom vibe. Like when <laughs> it's got like dormer ceilings. When people actually get up here, they're like looking for like a new kids on the block poster or something. But <laughs> I, I like to refer to it as the penthouse because it's on the top of our building. So uh. <laughs> That sounds better. Yeah. Um, well, Alan, uh, this has been just a, a fantastic conversation and, and uh, you know, congratulations to you and to your team and, and uh, you know, best wishes to uh, your client. And uh, I know this was a tragic situation and there's no making up for the loss of a life of, of someone like Cindy. Uh, but at the same time, I mean, this was just a, a great, uh, a, a great verdict, great job by you guys and, uh, and well-deserving to the, um, to the family. And my understanding is, is that this case is now finished. There will be no appeal. Is that right? So that's uh, that's good news for your, for your client. I'm sure that they want some closure and want, want to have this, uh, have this behind them. It, it, it is. And I, I'm, I'm very, um, I'm proud of them uh, in the in their trust and their faith in the system. Um, even though they're both, you know, legal residents but not citizens, and, and came here in the '90s as Vietnamese refugees, that that they were uh, willing to see it through in the face of of offers that I think an insurance company almost always gets people to take. Um, and so I, I'm very honored by the trust the clients put in us, and I'm relieved at, at you know a just result for them that they absolutely deserved uh, in this case. Well, uh, is the, Alan, is there anything else about the trial that uh, that we should let our listeners know that we haven't talked about? I, I think we covered it pretty well, Steve. You know? Yeah. Well, it, it, again, it's just a, a fantastic job, and um, and uh, best wishes to your client, um, and um, and and congratulations to your team. Uh, we have been speaking to Alan Hamilton, a partner at Shiver Hamilton in Atlanta, uh, Atlanta, Georgia, and you can look up Alan and read about him and read about this case at ShiverHamilton.com. Uh, Alan, thank you so much for your time. Thank you both. Talk soon. Okay. All right, thanks. All right. Thanks. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? Thank you for listening to the Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com. 
We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology, and Yvonne, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, we, we, we've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining, and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our greattrialspodcast.com, as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the uh, website. Yeah, so check those out. If you have a trial you would like to be featured on the Great Trials podcast, or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show, or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us, please email us at info at greattrialspodcast.com. Note if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. Right, exactly. <laughs> we only need a positive commentary. Yeah, we're fragile. Yeah. Um, you can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say, um, our podcast is not available for review. We, we also want to thank uh, the people behind the scenes. Uh, one is Taras Misher, who is our uh, uh, podcast extraordinaire. Uh, he is from Podcast on the Go. And Allison Hirsch uh, from Capricorn Communications. She is a magician when it comes to putting these shows together and getting them scheduled. And this has been the Great Trials Podcast, and we appreciate your time, and hope you'll listen again. Thank you for listening.